Okay, so this last section of Malachi here is kind of the conclusion to the whole, and it really brings it in all together with this prophecy of the coming of John the Baptist, the coming of the Messiah, and there's this language pretty frequently here of the day of the Lord. So we'll need to do a little bit of work to look at what the day of the Lord here means, and uh, the context really does connect quite well to those previous verses. And for just a reminder, the theme of this book we see all the time is the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, and even by implication how often the name the Lord of hosts is used. Half of all the verses in this book reference the Lord of hosts. As just a reminder that this Lord that we're serving is, and actually in the, that last hymn we sang, in a mighty fortress in our God, it actually says Lord Sabaoth, his name, which is the um, Lord of hosts is what Lord uh, Sabaoth means. And so when we think, I was like, oh yeah, it's the Lord of hosts. He's the almighty, the powerful, the sovereign God, the one who is to be feared Above all gods. Uh, we have extra outlines on the table up here if people need them. And so we come to verse 1 of chapter 4. And we had just been talking about, we didn't get to it too much last week, but those who fear the Lord, speaking together about the things of God, the Lord hearing them, remembering what they've talked of, and God proclaiming that they'll be His. They'll be His people. He'll be their God. This is the essence of the covenant. Uh, God is our God. We are His people. And then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. And so this, this discernment, this separation, is really at the heart of what this passage is when we're looking at judgment. So I've uh, kind of bold underlined a lot of these ideas. Um, how much righteousness versus wickedness is brought out uh, in response to the day of the Lord. Because this idea of the day of the Lord is largely an idea of separating of separating the righteous and the wicked, separating the one who serves God from the one who does not serve God. And this says, uh, all the time we see in Jesus' ministry, all those parables, separating the good fish from the bad, separating the sheep from the goats, separating uh, the wheat from the tares. Uh, it's, it's an idea of separating between the righteous and the wicked. And this will take place and happen at the day of the Lord. And... The day of the Lord is a phrase that comes about throughout the prophets. And often, I think we have a bit of a narrow view of what the day of the Lord means. We often think of it as just that final coming of Christ, that final day of judgment. And so similar to when we talked about in the Psalms that judgment in Scripture does not always just solely refer to the final um, proclamation of the sentence of judgment, but there's a progressive nature to it as well. And I would argue that this day of the Lord, we can see largely in three different ways. We can see the day of the Lord, uh, its first incarnation, you could say, is with Christ. The day of the Lord came with the coming of Christ as the one who would proclaim finally and certainly what it is to be a true follower of God versus a wicked follower of God. And even in the sermon this morning, so much of the language there was uh, this is false religion. This is hypocrisy. This is not believing the power of God or the scriptures versus here's what true religion looks like. And so even Jesus himself said, I came to bring a sword. And what does a sword do? It separates. And we think of Hebrews 4, the sword being the word of the Lord that separates to the inmost parts of our soul. And when God's word comes through Christ, it separates out 
even into our heart and exposes our hypocrisy. So a judgment, a type of judgment came in the coming of Christ where he did say for judgment and the separating and even um, he's like a fire is already going to be kindled in my ministry. That's going to even separate families where parents are turned against children and daughter against mother-in-law, all these things. Uh, but then we can also see the day of the Lord uh, progressively whenever God's spirit comes in a particular way, whenever justice is done in a particular way by the work of God, there is a coming of a separating. Whenever a heart is convicted of their own hypocrisy, that is like a judgment against the heart um, to hopefully separate out even in ourselves what's hypocritical from what's true. And then, of course, that final day of the Lord, when once for all, finally separating the righteous and the wicked when justice is done. That's just a little bit of context. Uh, so verse 1, behold, so take a look at this, the day is coming, it's burning like an oven and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble and that day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. We've seen throughout this book, there's so much wickedness going on in Israel. The people are so, um, have hearts turned away from the Lord and his coming will leave them neither root nor branch. For the proud ones who do wickedness, uh, they're not going to have root. That is, they're not going to have a foundation to stand on. And they're not going to have branch. They're not going to have fruit. Because it's going to be cut down. And there's a, many of the commentators would say that in this passage, there's a particular context here. Um, Maybe the most uh, particular application, you could say, of this idea is of what happened to the Jews in 70 AD when Rome came and destroyed the temple and oppressed the people. That was the greatest judgment of God against his wicked people, that he left them without a temple. He left them without really even a religion they could follow. And the oppression and the... Um, Persecution that the Jews suffered at the hands of the Romans 70 years after the birth of Christ was enormous. And that is, has often been seen in church history as one of these manifestations of this prophecy here that uh, th those who were wicked and did not obey Christ's command to flee the city, because uh, when Jesus prophesied about the destruction of the temple, he said, when this starts happening, you need to leave the city and flee to the mountains. And those that believed Christ's words did flee to the mountains and didn't receive the judgment against the Jewish people. But the ones who disbelieved Christ's words, uh, there was burning, there was slaughter, and they actually, in a sense, did become ash. As it says um, in verse 3, there will be ashes under the soles of your feet. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say that that connects, but there's an idea that uh, the judgment against the Jews was a really great judgment of the Lord in 70 AD. So that's a, that's a particular application of this whole passage, um, which we actually saw happen in history. And I wanted to just point out, I think it's interesting, this connection between, in verse 1, all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble. And really thinking about this connection between pride and wickedness, and how pride leads us to wickedness. Because really, what wickedness is saying, it's kind of this idea of like, I'm above the law. And if you've ever known someone who's really proud, it often does lead to this sort of attitude that's like, I can do whatever I want. And especially when you see um, these cases, uh, whether it's like a Jeffrey Epstein, these like really famous people that have a lot of money that think they can kind of get away with everything. 
They can buy their way about whatever, and they really are above the law. And there's often little remorse when these people are caught because they still feel like they're above the law and the, they're self-determining. And for us, whenever we fall into sin and doing evil, it, there is kind of this heart attitude of autonomy, which is kind of one of our highest cultural ideals right now, is that I am self-determining. I determine what's right and wrong. And wasn't that the heart in the book of Judges? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the essence of a culture that's left the fear of the Lord. Uh, what this whole book has been about is that I get to do what I, is right in my own eyes. Uh, it was interesting, Julie and I yesterday got some free tickets through her work to go to this like poetry slam event in downtown Grand Rapids in Fountain Street Church, which is known for its liberalism. And it was just kind of like really sitting in the heart of uh, this highest value being self-expression. So whether that's in certain areas of sexuality or gender, and it was just so evident here that this highest cultural value is self-expression and self-identity, that I will shape what's right for me. I will do what's best for me, kind of no matter what anyone else says. It was really interesting just seeing this played out, this idea um, that there's like a pride in it. I get to do what I want. Me, me. Uh, That's kind of the thought there. But we aren't immune from this. You know, we kind of think sometimes, ah, we can be lazy with God's law. We can take it kind of loosely. Uh, But there's a pride that leads us to sin. And the day of the Lord will burn it up, says the Lord of hosts. Leave them neither root nor branch. But, verse 2, here's a a more positive note. To you who fear my name, that is, you who are not proud, who are submitted to me, and have chosen to come under me, come under my rule, join my kingdom, be my people, acknowledge me, to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. Uh, What a beautiful prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. The son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. Uh, You could almost just as easily say the S-O-N son of righteousness. Christ the son. But this metaphor of Christ being like a son I think is really cool. Yeah, Becky. I have a question. Before it comes Right here to the Son of Righteousness, it talks about him in the root of a branch. Is, is that it? Did you see in the commentary at all? Was that in the commentary um, or any reference to like root or um, the root of Jesse or, you know, how you have a root and branch? Right. Point to Christ. And then hmm. also that comes with the Son of Righteousness. Was there, because it just seems so different that they're leaving neither root nor branch. Is there any type of connection there? Did they I, I, I think there is a connection there. Like, especially thinking of like Romans 11, that idea that um, the branches were cut off from the root of Christ by their unbelief. Um, so I do think that's definitely a very clear allusion there. Yeah, I'd agree. Thanks for pointing that out. That, yeah, if you do not trust in Christ and fully honor God, you're, even though you think you're attached to Abraham by your physical descent, like, you are not even going to have a root there nor a branch in connection by your unbelief. So, I definitely think so. Um, yeah, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. It's kind of, at first I was thinking, this is a really weird mixed metaphor, kind of like they teach you not to do in writing classes, to turn one analogy into another one. Because at first it's like it's talking about Christ is like a son, but then it's talking about healing in his wings. Um, But then I learned, um, and only one person pointed this out, but apparently in uh, this time frame, in the Semitic culture, it was very common to speak of the son as a disc with wings. 
So just as we kind of think of the rays of the sun, they thought of the rays of the sun as the wings of the sun. So this actually is a consistent metaphor. And I really like, if you take it that way, what it kind of looks like is the sun itself being the sun of righteousness, like objectively Christ the righteous one, the one who gives um, his righteousness to his people, who will enact justice, who will judge justly, who will separate the righteous from the wicked truly. What happens as he radiates that out, as Christ's righteousness goes out, what it affects is healing. Almost like the warmth then of the sun, um, being those wings of the sun, uh, as the warmth of Christ comes after the light of the righteousness. The light of Christ's righteousness and then the warmth of the healing that that brings. I think it's actually a really beautiful holistic picture there. And if you think of what happens um, when Christ is said to heal us from our iniquities, but then also heal our relationship with the Father, that reconciliation... So by receiving Christ's righteousness, our relationship with our Father is healed. And we even talk about this in our natural relationships. If we have relationships that need healing, you know, there's been hurts. Um, alienation, even between parents and child, can be really common. And then just when people talk about like, yeah, we've really got healing in our relationship. We've really had that relationship restored and isn't that the greatest fruit of Christ's ministry that we're then healed in our relationship with the Father to one of wholeness and love in the Father because the Son of Righteousness has now risen. And this isn't just uh, to the unbeliever who's to be converted by the Son of Righteousness. He's talking to those who already fear his name. And so this is something that can happen for us, I think, every day, that just as the sun rises every day, we ought to think of every morning that the sun of righteousness has arisen and shone on me with his light, opened my heart to receive his light, and I've been healed. And just that idea that by his stripes you have been healed. Um, we've been objectively healed with God, objectively healed in our soul. And what a beautiful way um, to even just go from here, just a thing to take away, just every time we see the sun rising, to think that the sun of righteousness has risen. We're not waiting for it. It has happened, and he's radiated warm healing. And I think that would just be a wonderful thing to think of every time we saw a sunrise. And the effect in us, when we receive this healing with the Father, this righteousness, you go out and grow like, uh, grow fat like stall-fed calves. Uh, maybe not as relevant an analogy for us these days, but the picture is here, a stall-fed calf as opposed to a grass-fed calf. Uh, yes, Luke. Oh, it's just so... Just a contrast, like verse 1 and then 2. So it's the same like day and sun that's burning them up as to, mm -hmm. you know, the, the righteousness and then the healing. Like the sun right. Is raised, so. Right. It's a, yeah, it's that that's good. Sun. Yeah, what's, um, there's that famous Puritan quote which says that um, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. Mm -hmm. So how God has made us. Um, as God's grace and even mercy and his word extends to unbelievers, it's like it's a sun that hardens them. Whereas to the believer that's already been broken under brokenhearted, as we heard, um, there's an, a melting effect on our heart. But it's the same word going forth that affects two different responses based on our internal disposition. So I think, I think that's a really good point there. Or actually, I heard this analogy recently, which I really liked, saying um, it's like the wind. If you're walking and the wind's at your back, um, it's a help to you. Whereas that same wind blowing, if you're walking against it, it's, um, it's a nuisance and a burden to you. So that's like the wicked walking against God's law and against Christ. 
Um, God's pouring out grace and love in common grace through his word, but it's like a hindrance to them because they're trying to go the opposite way of God. Um, yeah, so stall-fed calves, that would be the calf that they would want to be the fattened calf, the one that they're um, really nursing and tending. And this is going to be their healthiest one, this one that's been fed in the stall. So it'll be lean and healthy. And there's even an idea there that you go out, because they're cooped up as much, then the stall-fed calf, when they are opened up, they frolic on the hills because they're happy and healthy and they're rejoicing. So we go out and rejoice like a leaping young calf or something. And if you've ever seen that, they, are, they do look really happy when a calf is like leaping around and stuff. Uh, uh, but, but then we go back to this, uh, kind of the negative idea of it here is that you shall trample the wicked they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord. Um, again, I was, I was wrestling a little bit with how do we take this in the various senses of the day of the Lord? In what sense are the wicked now being trampled under our feet? Um, and I do think this does seem to particularly be referring to that last judgment when there's that final burning. But even as in the benediction that um, Reverend Olinger read today from Romans 16, 19, the God of peace will trample Satan underneath your feet. And there's a sense in which perhaps um, evil, is, evil is currently being trampled under the feet of the church. Um, evil is being subdued under the feet of Christ. He will reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. And in the New Testament, when you look at the word enemies, it's always, without exception, referring to enemies of the gospel. And so putting down enemies and trampling them I think could be really a reference to the crushing of unbelief and wickedness as the gospel transforms a heart. It's almost like that old heart of stone has been crushed and the new fleshly heart has been given. Um, I, I wouldn't write my name necessarily to that, but I do think that that idea could be really here um, in this idea of the um, wicked being under the soles of our feet. Uh, any, any thoughts so far? Or questions? There's a lot of reference to in the Bible about things being burned. Waste was always burned. Right. So you've got the ashes from the right. waste. And it goes back to the, the roots and the branches. Hmm. You know, the roots are your heritage and what your beliefs are. The branches are what's going to happen going into the hmm. future. Right. So... You know, and in the New Testament, it talks about pride and training the trees so they produce mm, food. Right. Because the tree just wants to grow. You know, right. it's full of pride and it wants to reach to the sun, but those branches are cut back and so they mm. produce fruit. And what's cut off is burns. Mm. Yeah, and it, isn't that what we want as believers? Uh, if we remember back to chapter 3, we're talking about purifying the sons of Levi, as we also need that purifying fire, um, not to be reduced to ash, but for hopefully it to reduce the sin in our lives to ash, to reduce the wickedness in our thoughts and actions. So ash is like, yeah, kind of like Luke was saying, we need that sun to burn up and purify us, even as it warms us. Um, yeah, so many metaphors here. It's real neat. And, okay, this is really phenomenal here, these last three verses. This is God's last word to his church before the coming of Christ. This is his last command. 
before they're going to go into 400 years without a prophetic voice, without any new revelation from the Lord. Nothing to look to but to look back on. And here's God's final words to his people. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. That's the last command, and then here's the last promise. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a curse. So when they're going to go into this long waiting period, a period where they're going to need to be patient, waiting for the coming of the Messiah. 400 years, that's a long time. That's many generations. The call is to faithful obedience. Obedience to the law. Obedience to the commands, to the statutes and judgment which God gave to his people through Moses. And uh, there's not going to be anything extreme happening. They're not to expect any more great miracles. No more Elijah's, Elisha's, no more Moses says. Just the word of God, the commandments God gave, and to obey them. And this is, again, at the heart of the fear of the Lord, the theme of this whole book, as we've seen so many areas where Israel was wicked, giving God false and unacceptable worship, um, unbiblical divorce and marriages, um, injustice throughout the land. And God says, no, be my people. I will be the Lord and be faithful to the laws I've given you because I've given you them for your good. As he told them originally, these laws were for their good. And it's interesting. This is really similar to how the book of Revelation also ends. Um, in Revelation 22, the last sort of picture we have before the very concluding paragraph is this idea of faithful obedience. I should pull it up because I don't really remember what it says. Um, Revelation 22 Verse, I think, at 10 and 11. Verse 14. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they, have, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. For without are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. Even one of the last calls to the church now in the new covenant is this promise of blessing to those that do the commands. And the call to all those seven churches at the beginning of Revelation is to the one who endures. I will give the crown. I will give this, that. So this call to faithful endurance in obedience is common to all waiting periods. It's necessary to all times, but particularly in a waiting period where we're not going to have, we don't, um, especially as Presbyterians, expect new great prophets and new great miracles to sustain us and guide us. We have the word of God and the commandments and the way of Jesus that he's taught us. And to be faithful in that, in a sense, like the ordinary Christian life, um, we're not looking for the spectacular in our lives, but we're looking for faithfulness and faithfulness in keeping the commands of God and being formed through that into the very character of Jesus, where the fruit then of the Spirit and good works, this love, joy, is in our lives. And maybe God does much through us. Maybe he does very little through us, but that's up to him. Our job is to be faithful. 
Our job is to be faithful to the Lord. Uh, and it's, I, and this isn't actually just faithfulness in obedience, but I think also faithfulness in doctrine and in the truth. Because part of God's law was included in there was the truth of who God is, God's character, God's righteousness, all those sorts of things. And so faithfulness needs to be faithfulness in the truth handed down and faithfulness in the actions and obedience. Because in church history, you see again and again, there's two ways that churches lose. There's two ways... Uh, there's a top-down attack and there's a bottom-up attack. And we're always assaulted by both. So in the church, historically, the top-down attack is almost always false teaching coming through teachers, coming through seminaries. So seminaries that are liberal, uh, the false teaching usually starts in academia. Because academia, by virtue of the whole system, it promotes novelty and it promotes coming up with new ideas and theories. You're not allowed to write a PhD on something that's been done before. You have to write it on something new. And so this idea of novelty and academic responsibility filters into pastors who then teach their churches. And because most people are meant to be taught, uh, we know that people listen to what they're taught. And uh, God says he holds the teachers to higher strictness in James 4. So uh, that's a corrupting influence often coming from the top in churches that causes them to lose the gospel. But we see just as much, and this is probably more our danger, is the corrupting influence from the bottom, which is worldliness. Worldliness, and this usually happens by first infecting the youth. And this usually comes from over exposure, you could say, to secular culture and the ideas and values of the world when they're not countered by biblical truth and modeling in a helpful way. So when the church culturally becomes just like the world with the same values, the same ethics, uh, the gospel gets eroded from the bottom up because wickedness pervades and then nominalism pervades. And even though you still have all the right truth on paper, there's no vital godliness left. So if we're going to be faithful, we have to look to God's word both for our foundation of truth and our foundation of ethics. And then he gives them this promise, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. This is the same, a repetition of that prophecy in chapter 3, verse 1, where he says, behold, I will send my messenger before the day of the Lord. It's almost exact language. And there the messenger isn't explicitly said to be John the Baptist. Um, here it's explicitly said to be Elijah, but then Jesus tells us, and I think it's Matthew 10, 11, that John the Baptist was the spirit and power of Elijah. He was the true prophet to prepare the way of the Lord. Uh, and it's interesting here also, the connection of Moses and Elijah. Moses was kind of the epitome of the greatest sort of priest, if you will, and Elijah the greatest prophet. And I was thinking it's interesting um, that the actual, the greatest prophets in the Old Testament are said to be Elijah and Elisha, but we have no writings of them. So it's like, in my mind, I'm always like, oh, Isaiah and Jeremiah are the greatest prophets because they wrote the biggest books. <laughs> um, so it's interesting that like the most prone prophets we have no writings of, and many of the people we actually have scriptural writings of, we have like almost zero account of their life. It was like, it's interesting. I don't know. I don't, I don't know what's with that, but I don't know. God had a good reason, I'm sure. And he sent Elijah, and Elijah came, and he prepared the way for Christ. And this leads us to this last promise, which is actually, I think, a very commonly misunderstood verse. It says that he, that is referring to John the Baptist, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the children to the fathers. Now, there's a couple different ways to interpret this. Um, I will tell you, the main one I'm pretty sure it does not mean 
is this does not mean um, that John the Baptist's ministry would be to make like stronger family relationships. This is not about like, oh, my dad was kind of, he kind of ignored me, but now he shows me love, and I kind of was disrespectful to my dad, but now I love him. Uh, that like doesn't fit at all with the tenor or style of what we're talking about here. To introduce a whole thing about kind of family harmony would make no sense in the context. And it had, makes no, very little sense in the context of John the Baptist's ministry. Like we have no reference to this. Um, so here are the two probably better options of what this is meaning. Uh, this word turn, that's the word almost always used for repentance. Um, to turn is what to repent means. And this was John the Baptist's main ministry, we're told, is that he had a baptism of repentance, of turning. And like, it was so, it's so perfect aligned with Malachi, this idea of you as are hypocritical and pharisaical, and you need to repent and turn to back to following the truth. And it was in that turning that they'd be prepared then to receive Christ. And so uh, the perhaps easiest option is that, and a lot of commentators think this, um, that preposition two could be translated, and that word is often the word with. He will turn the hearts of the fathers with the children, and the hearts of the children with the fathers. So this is like saying all the people of the land will collectively turn in repentance to Christ. He'll turn both generations of people, the fathers with their children, the children with their fathers will all be turned to Christ. That's, uh, that's what a lot of people take it as. Um, and maybe the most popular way is to say, to look at it as the fathers referring to the faithful Israelites of old. That is like the patriarchs. And he will turn the hearts of the children to the ways and the faith of their fathers. And as that happens, the faith of the fathers, in a sense, of that cloud of witnesses, is then again turned to encouraging their people instead of, in a sense, they would be sitting over in judgment against their children. Um, both of those actually... Whichever one of those is right, they both have the same effect, that this is about repentance. And I think this is the important thing to see here, is that this is a prophecy that the people will collectively repent before the coming of Christ. Uh, it, was, it was considered a revival in John the Baptist's ministry. He was like a revival preacher, and there was a massive revival happening in Israel during that time. Tons of people were going out to be baptized and repent from their wickedness and turn and in that, there was a preparation, a softness of heart to receive the ministry of Christ. Does, does that make sense? Because I'd always heard it as like the family, I was like, have good relationships in family. Well, it's valid, seem valid? Sounds kind of like what you were saying earlier. If it goes back to the branch, it's the same thing, the past and the future. Yeah. Generations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, and actually, um, a good support of this is actually this verse is quoted in Luke chapter 1, prophesying about John the Baptist's ministry when he's a baby. And it breaks this verse halfway. It says, He'll come to turn the hearts of the children to the fathers. And then it says, And the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. So it's like there again, we have a very clear, this is an ethical repentance emphasis, not a family relationship emphasis. Though, of course, repentance would include harmony and greater love and family relationships. Like a fruit of repentance is going to be fathers and children loving one another. So I think we still get to have our cake and eat it too here. Because um, this is a great verse. I really like it. Um, yeah, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just is the idea the New Testament takes it as. Lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Um, the repentance is necessary. This word cursed would probably be better translated destruction. Um, 
just like, yeah, we have, like, more uh, mystical ideas about what curses are. Uh, but this thing, repentance is necessary because if you don't repent, judgments comes, and you'll be like these people burned up in the oven, burned, and um, not having root in their branch. Um, and so we need repentance. So I think, uh, to summarize this book, which I enjoyed studying this far more than I anticipated, um, I'd say it's now officially my favorite minor prophet. I gotta say, Malachi is my favorite minor prophet now. And um, just to recap, this, the idea of the book is taking God seriously. We looked at taking God's worship seriously. We looked at taking um, leadership in the church seriously, taking marriage and family seriously, taking justice and obedience seriously, taking giving and giving to God what's his due seriously, and here taking God's judgment and his coming seriously. And so as we're a people similar to those in Malachi's day, We've had God's instructions given, and we're awaiting the coming of Christ as well. We're awaiting now that second coming, where this will be fully and finally fulfilled to an even greater extent. So how are we to be people of faithfulness, patiently waiting for, hastening the coming of the Lord? Um, and as, even as Peter says, as you look to this day, what sort of people ought you to be in holiness? Holiness, faithfulness, to fear the Lord in everything. And to fear God is really just to take the, take, uh, to factor God into every thought and situation, to live like God was right beside us, that he was watching over us um, at all times. So let's be people who fear the Lord and who are excited um, for the second coming of Christ when he'll make all things new. He'll right all wrongs and take us to be with him, to be his people forever with the Lord of hosts. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, you are deserving of all fear, honor, reverence, and obedience. Uh, you are the Lord, and your commands are good, and you've given them to us for our good. We ask that you would forgive us for where we self-justify ourselves and think that we're above having to submit to all the parts of your law, but are self-willed and follow the passions of our lusts. Would you forgive us? We ask that your Holy Spirit would cleanse and purify everything that is impure in us, expose our impure motives, expose our selfishness, that we might be people who are holy with minds set on you every day, that every day we would wake up remembering that the sun of righteousness has risen and radiates healing, that we, even though we fail to obey you as we ought, we fail to fear you as we ought, yet we are still healed and whole in Christ. We are um, warmed by the love of our heavenly father and would um, no condemnation of the enemy ever take that away from us. But from that love and acceptance, would we then pursue you with our whole heart, seek to take everything you've given us seriously because you are the God that spoke it. Uh, to the glory of Jesus Christ and for his sake we pray. Amen.